0: You could roll out the red carpet and authorize every sort of missing middle and accessory dwelling unit you'd like in certain places, and still nobody will come to build there.
1: Welcome to the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington cities. I'm Emma Shepard. At the start of the year, we released the findings of a new publication titled State of the Cities Housing Report, which found that Washington cities of every size are grappling with the lack of available affordable housing. At the same time, cities struggle with limited resources to increase available housing so that current and future residents can live and thrive there for years to come. But cities can't solve it alone. It's gonna take a working partnership with private and nonprofit sectors, along with key state, local, and federal agencies we need to get a grasp on the problem and tackle each piece with an innovative approach. I've got Carl Schrader here, our AWC government relations advocate, and we're gonna go over some of the key findings of the report. Welcome, Carl.
0: Hi, thanks, Emma.
1: Yeah, so I wanna go over some of the notable report findings. Um, One of the things that we found when we released this report was we surveyed our cities and 82% of them said that the lack of affordable housing is a problem in their community. Can you talk a little bit about what you hear from cities when they're talking about this issue?
0: Yeah, you know, I I've been working on housing issues for AWC for almost 10 years and the prominence of this as an issue has really increased over the last I would say 4 or 5 years where, you know, coming in affordability challenges and, you know, the the related challenges around homelessness we would primarily hear from the largest cities and um, you know, sort of seen as an urban issue in a lot of uh, a lot of ways. And that's really changed and we hear almost uh, more now from the smaller and mid-sized cities about you know, their challenges both attracting um, private market development, um, which I think is a real critical uh, challenge in a lot of communities and something that the state, um, you know, sort of struggles uh, to uh, provide assistance on compared to some of the more um, traditional subsidized housing programs. Um, so both challenges with address finding market rate um, development and then um, you know, the, the reality is in most places of the state, if not everywhere, to provide housing for um, community members who are making lower than the median income, um, you know 80% or below is sort of generally considered to um, be low income as, uh, as it relates to state programs. Those types of facilities really need to have some sort of public or um, nonprofit investment in them because the private sector cannot um, you know, cost effectively build and then recover their costs at those, those sorts of rent levels. And there's never enough of that resource to go around. You know, the state has a pretty robust housing trust fund. We're real high performers using federal uh, housing tax credits. But even that there's been a general um, and and concerted push to generate more options and revenue uh, possibilities at the local level and to increase the level of investment from the state in recognition of that um, because we've just got a real gap um, and need around particularly low-income housing.
1: Another big finding in the report was that the statewide medium home price has doubled in the last eight years. So that's a huge figure. And that seems to be moving pretty quick. Do you think that has to do with population growth and driving those populations into the cities or what's going on there?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a, a number of things going on. But the um, yeah, the cost number is pretty, you know, almost, un, <laughs> it's hard to imagine, right, Having doubling in eight years. And Um, you've seen a similar sort of trend on um, rent levels as well. So the housing affordability challenges in the state, uh, both for homeowners and renters, have been really um, getting even more dire over um, the recent years. And it does seem to be accelerating. I don't have that, you know, uh, documented necessarily. But I think there's a number of things that contribute to that. So on the homeownership side, we are sort of running out of um, easily developable green space um, land in a lot of cities. uh, And that's been the the traditional kind of approach that the building industry has looked to to build single-family homes—it's um, simpler and more cost-effective for them uh, to have um, sort of unadulterated land as opposed to trying to redevelop already-built um, urban environments. Uh, that's a, a challenge with growth management, right? Because um, that remaining green space land uh, isn't as uh, usually as connected to services, and it's not in the parts of the community that have good access to transit and transportation options. So, from a societal perspective, um, and from a local government perspective, trying to um, provide infrastructure and, and other supports for those um, houses, it's not necessarily in the best interest to to continue to push out and seek more greenfield land. But that does make the land that is available more expensive, and in some cases, the the type of housing development that you can do is more expensive because of that as well. Um, so you have to look at it um, you know, from a longer time horizon to see those benefits. But from a consumer's point of view, they're seeing these house prices going up and up. On the rental side, we have had really, really low vacancy rates um, in the state for several years running now. Um, I think the number that we used in the report was that we're the fourth lowest run, rental vacancy rate in the whole country and that we have uh, it's not just a, it, an urban issue. Actually, the, the highest vacancy rate was in King County at 5%, but uh, 5.3. But um, you know, some of our uh, more rural counties, Cowlitz, Kittitas, Skagit, Whatcom, they have less than 1% vacancy rates. And there's, there's kind of this um, rule of thumb that once your vacancy rates get below 5 to 7%, which is sort of considered a natural vacancy rate, You start to see upward pressure on prices so that's contributing um, directly to rental cost increases and both of those um, are further challenged by the fact that there's a variety of reasons but the state is not producing enough housing units uh, to keep up with population growth Uh, some of the things that we've been facing at the legislative level uh, are folks who sort of believe that city decision making is a primary contributor to that gap Um, in housing and and we'll talk more about what we hear from cities in in terms of that. But, you know, we're like 225,000 units behind in some cases and that uh, or on, on some estimates. And if you think about what the level of investment that's going to be needed to build those um, units, that's billions of dollars of private investment. That's going to be necessary. 80% of that gap, that 225,000 is needed for people who make less than 80% of the area median income And at that point, you're getting into those um, types of homes that I talked about where you need to have nonprofit or public subsidy to really make them work. And as much investment as we've made on affordable housing and subsidized housing in the state, we are nowhere near putting enough money into the system to um, get over that hump. So that's a real challenge.
1: Another notable finding from the report is that 80% of cities say they need state funding to support affordable housing programs and local planning efforts. Talk about what you're hearing from cities and uh, what kind of state support they're looking for.
0: Yeah, part of it is the, the point I was just making about the need to have um, public investment dollars to really uh, reach down into the type of housing that's affordable at the lowest income levels. And cities, um, by and large, have never had direct um, revenue appropriations for this. Um, you know, housing and homelessness have uh, been a county level service. Um, more so than a city level service, although over time that's um, shifting a little bit. So we've supported um, new revenue options for cities. Uh, There was one a couple of years ago, House Bill 1406, which was a really landmark kind of revenue sharing program. Over 20 years, it was $500 million of state sales tax. that was gonna be rebated back to cities to make investments in affordable housing. Absent that kind of um, partnership with the state, lots of cities are not in a position to um, spend money on uh, affordable housing. Now we do have a, a you know growing number who are levying optional revenue sources like um, property tax levies or sales taxes that are dedicated to housing purposes. But it's not uh, you know it's not a historical thing that cities have had as a you know book of business. So that's a kind of an emerging theme. And in terms of local planning, you know, so much of what we've been hearing, especially recently, from advocates in the legislature to um, create more housing supply is that you know, it's local zoning and land use codes that are contributing to some of those um, underbuilding um, projections that I shared earlier. And, um, you know, there's some truth to that in some communities. I think it's also really overblown in terms of the lack of interest in cities to uh, make changes that are smart on that front that, to help open up housing supply. And we've got, you know, dozens of examples of cities who are doing really innovative work on that front. Um, but planning is, um, hard to get funded at the local level, just as it is hard to get funded at the state level. It's a general fund expense. It's in, in competition with police and fire and other core governmental services. You know, it's kind of seen as the, f- the first to get cut and the last to get brought back when we have um, recessions um, and the, the COVID-related revenue impacts. This year uh, may play out the same way But we have planning departments in mid-sized cities who tell me that they're still downstaffed from the 2008 recessions um, or those that came after the housing bubble in that time frame. So there's just not uh, as much capacity at the local level to do as much of that work as some people would like. So one of our efforts is to try to build up a better funding, direct funding source from the state so that if they want cities to tackle new problems or take another look at old problems, um, there's a means to support them doing that.
1: Let's go over some common misconceptions about affordable housing. The report included several key findings that bust these common myths. So I'm gonna state the myth and then I'm gonna tell you what the report found and we can kind of go over some of that. So one of the myths is that housing shortages only affect bigger cities and cities in central Puget Sound. You, t- you sort of talked about this a little bit, but the report found that actually cities all throughout the state in all different population sizes are seeing exceptional growth in the last 10 years. The report includes a chart of the top 20 fastest growing cities, and there's some surprises. Um, there's a few of the well-known high-growth King County cities like Kirkland and Sammamish, but also cities on the east side like Connell, Airway Heights, and Liberty Lake, plus some smaller cities on the west side like Yelm, Ridgefield, and Duval. So anytime you see a steep increase in the population, the city could face some housing supply concerns for that growth. So how is this growth impacting, and, um, and what are you hearing?
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. We're hearing uh, from all shapes and sizes of cities about their challenges with accommodating growth. And it's really critical for policymakers and others who are interested in this to understand the. really there are very different pressures on these types of communities, um, right? So um, Ridgefield is a good example. They were um, participants with us in a University of Washington Growth Management Act uh, review process over the summer of 2020. And Um, the city manager there was talking about their efforts to um, encourage multifamily development in a certain area of town and that they were unsuccessful with that for many years until a grocery store um, moved in and was built in that area. And then the market changed for the housing developers and it became more feasible uh, for them to build because they could sell it as having amenities and closeness to things that were important to the people who might live there like grocery stores. Uh, other example, um, you know, on the other side of um, the issue is is a city like Yelm, which was the fastest growing city in Thurston County. But because they've run into the end of their um, legal water right, they're not able to permit new subdivisions now. And so, in an area where there was um, desire to build and to, to continue to provide housing, another problem was the impediment. Um, Granite Falls and in Snohomish County is another example where it was one of the most uh, remaining affordable places in Snohomish County that was uh, driving distance of Everett and Seattle and <clears throat> was under a lot of growth pressure there, but they were beginning to run into the end of their capacity and their municipal sewer plant. So what we you know have been faced with at the legislative level is a lot of concentration on the really hot real estate markets where... You know the various um, vagaries of individual city codes could have, you know, impact on development potential or the development cost of of buildings. And a feeling like um, those codes were the reason why growth wasn't going as fast as it should. On the other hand, we have scores of cities who are not facing that hot real estate market they may have where the codes you could make an argument or you know slowing growth that otherwise would occur in those cases they really need some other sort of investment or spur or change in local situation to uh, see the development and they could i used to kind of talk about it like this that you could roll out the red carpet and authorize every sort of missing middle and accessory dwelling unit you'd like in a you know certain places and still nobody will come to build there so if we're going to Uh, really tackle this problem holistically and have solutions that are appropriate across the state, we need to have a a variety of approaches and we can't, you know, just get sucked into the shiny object of of one particular solution or another because they're only going to be relevant to certain cities.
1: Another myth that the report uh, busted was that cities aren't doing much to address local housing shortages. So actually that's not true. The report found that cities are actively engaged in addressing local housing policies in fact, cities have taken a variety of policy actions between 2019 and 2020 alone, including reviewing development regulations and housing construction fees and creating housing action plans or authorizing new housing types in single-family zones. What are you hearing on this one?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think uh, really that idea that cities are not doing much to address local housing needs is, is really misstated, um, I think. There has been an incredible interest as we've worked on these issues, um, particularly over the last several years um, to both demonstrate what's already been done, show receptivity to um, new sorts of approaches. um, And and we've really been pushing an incentive-based approach uh, where the state could identify policies that they think are critical or worth um, pursuing and then help provide um, support for cities to adopt those. Financial support for planning, as we discussed, um, planning departments in a lot of cities are really crunched and don't have the capacity to even do, um, you know, the minimum right now. So, getting them uh, some support to move uh, forward with these code changes is really critical. Um, and we've seen success on that. Uh, House Bill 1923 came out in uh, 2019 and offered um, grants to cities to do code changes and. Um, You know, we had seven cities get support for authorizing duplexes on all their corner lots and seven cities got support to generate form based codes, which are a little easier to get through the permitting process for a particular development. I don't want to give you numbers on all these, but you know planned actions around transit centers and expanding authorities around accessory dwelling units and a variety of other things also a really critical and. um, popular component of that was um authorizing cities to get support to generate local housing action plans and that could be done at a local um, single city level or with regional um, groups of cities and so you know for example walla walla college place Waitsburg, and dayton um, not large cities by any stretch but an important region in the state to um, work together to try to identify what their needs are there which are going to be different than Lacey, olympia and tumwater who also did the same thing Uh, So, you know, I think just in general, we've already shown that there's a lot of interest in uh, taking the next step on housing policies. And then if you look back, you know, prior to those incentive based approaches, you know, we've been tracking and trying to get our hands around, you know, the different actions that cities have been taking on housing and have identified, you know, 10 to 15 different policies that we hear about from advocates at the state level and trying to understand which of those have already been adopted and, you know, there are cities like Wenatchee that is a, have adopted 11 of those policies already. Others like Stevenson, um, little tiny city in Southwest Washington, that's adopted eight of them, you know, Shoreline, uh, right in the heart of uh, Urban King County with 13. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of engagement and investment on this. I think the challenge is, and the reason this myth seems to be persistent, is that it comes from folks who are uh, trying to approach the problem with a very specific solution in mind and um, the nature of the beast with cities is that there's there's different problems there's variations and opportunities uh, different tax bases and all this other stuff that results in um, slightly different approaches being taken by different communities to address the same issues and that's a you know, a a feature, not a bug of the way that Washington um, growth management works and and city development um, works. Um, But if you're only looking at it from a narrow lens of, I want this one particular housing policy to be, um, you know, taken up at a greater degree, sometimes you're running into that, um, running upstream, I guess, with that kind of approach.
1: Our next myth is that cities don't allow new construction because of loud local opposition. Um, the report found that city's largest barriers to new housing actually include lack of developable land, infrastructure challenges, bears in expanding urban growth areas, and the high cost of land and construction. And so what are some of these, these challenges that cities find to, um, to construct new housing?
0: Yeah, that's been a big theme, this idea that, you know, city councils are captured, so to speak, by the existing residents who are, um, you know, a lot of places... Um, homeowners who are, have already achieved some success in life and are, you know, particularly um, capable of, of um, expressing their opinions to their local elected officials, and that there's not enough, you know, courage, so to speak, among local electeds to overcome that. And there's obviously going to be a certain amount of truth in in something like that. There's, uh, there are always, uh, you know, squeaky wheels and the um, process, you um, at all levels of government is responsive to people who raise concerns. On the other hand, you know, there's some really shining examples. If you look at, you know, Shoreline, for instance, we were talking about earlier, they were um, provided with a light rail station and sound transit that was scheduled to go into a um, already developed single family neighborhood. Um, And in recognition of the value of that investment and the fact that to maximize transit, the city needed to upzone that area and allow a denser level of development. And when you try to upzone to that degree in a single-family neighborhood, you generate a lot of concern and opposition from homeowners who think about what um, you know that change might mean for their situation. And in that case, that ended up being like one of the central fights of the next council election. It was the thing that people ran on and against each other on. And the council that voted to up. Up zone, you know, did so with the understanding that they may lose their elected position over that, but they felt like it was the right thing to do. And ultimately, um, the folks who did that and made that tough choice, uh, you know, won their election, and and you know, some of them are still in the city. Um, so it's it's not the case that it's impossible for cities to overcome a lot of. Um, community concern. Olympia is another one that's an example where they were really um, proactive on missing middle housing types like duplexes and triplexes. And they generated a ton of um, community interest in that. And it's interesting. I mean, it raises a bit of a philosophical question. You know, there there there's certainly good points to be made that, you know, um, providing a greater variety of housing types helps to address equity issues that have arisen over time with sole single family zoning and the types of racial segregation that were um, perpetuated in the past uh, through zoning policies that, um, you know, those are the sorts of things that today's councils can start to make um, improvements on by opening up different development opportunities in those um, traditional single family neighborhoods. On the other hand, it's a feature of democracy that people get an opportunity to, you know, uh, address their elected officials and express their concerns and their position on the way their community grows around them. And so I've been challenged just personally, as we discuss it at the legislative level, you know, there's a, there are arguments to say the state should just make this decision and they should, um, you know, force cities to take some of these actions. But that really erodes that democracy that I talked about, because um, in the current situation, po- folks have a elected officials who are representatives of them uh, as city residents in a much smaller number, they're easily accessible. You see them in the grocery store or at the park, back when we could go to grocery stores and parks. Um, and in a if a state were to make that decision, you could have senators from across the state who you have no access to, no reason for them to listen to because you're not a constituent making these um, decisions. And so uh, I think it's more complicated than, Maybe it's presented at the top line in the media. Um, it's a challenge. And we're certainly uh, open and working towards how do we create and continue the progress that cities are making around creating new housing opportunities and you know um, finding ways to continue to improve. Our hope is that we can do that in a way where the state sort of establishes, these are the things you need to think about. These are the things you need to plan for. But don't say how you have to solve them. Doesn't don't say that this is the one solution that will work for both Connell and Seattle because we know that's there really won't be one. Um, and we've seen a uh, you know some success with that. Obviously, we were mentioning the programs that have already been created and the number of folks who have uh, cities who have uh, opted into those. But we're also seeing a, a great number of incentive-based approaches introduced in the 2021 legislature, where um, there's interest in, in saying, okay, well, what would it take to help cities get over the decision-making hump on some of these things? And rather than mandating it, let's talk about what kind of incentives would look like. So we're excited about that change for sure. Um, and, you know, this is an important issue and we really do need to struggle through it. So it's good to see that there's so many different ideas on how to make improvements um, coming forward in Olympia. And I know that our cities are gonna have an opportunity to shape those and and share their concerns and, and which of them they think are most effective or not.
1: So this one's our final myth, not really a myth, more of a clarification, but uh, the myth is affordable housing and low-income housing are the same thing, which is not true. The report uh, found that affordable housing is commonly mistaken for low-income housing. Um, But actually, housing affordability is just any housing that's considered affordable for its family or occupant when the rent or mortgage payment is not more than 30% of the household income. On the other hand, low-income housing is often supported by public and nonprofit subsidies and is deemed affordable based on income levels that are lower than the area's media income. Can you talk a little bit about um, this distinction and and, um, how much do you have to clarify that for people?
0: Yeah, it comes up a a decent amount. Really, you know, some of the... um the places where these two similar but unre- you know but different uh, definitions come up is is there's there's always an interest in affordable housing, making sure that there is housing affordable to people so that they don't have to pay more than thirty percent of their income. Um, and it, where it kind of becomes most challenging is where you're kind of on that line between where the market, because of the type of community and the rents that are available there, and the cost of development and the cost of um, land and all of that, um, it is possible to see naturally created affordable housing with that definition um, uh, created by the private market. In other places, it's just not. And um, so I've taken to trying to use the idea of subsidized housing um, when I'm talking about the the elements of the housing need that need to be supported by public and private subsidies to actually be able to be rented at the level that's affordable to people that make that um, less than 60% of the area median income or 80%. Um, You know, there are lots of places in the state that are trying to focus their efforts on 30% or below of the area median income, which is extremely low income. In some cases, people that are unable to pay any sort of rent Um, and they need housing too. And if they if we can't figure out how to produce that and um, have it available across the state, that really contributes to the homelessness problems that we have um, because those folks are just not able to, um, you know, go rent a studio. And so they may be crowding into homes with multiple roommates or couch surfing or, or literally living on the streets. Um, so, you know, we look to promote both. We wanna see more housing that's um, market driven. If at all possible, try to um, encourage that to be done in a rental level that's, you know, affordable in, this, um, in the community without public subsidy. Um, but then we also know that we need to have an enhanced level of support for the more uh, deeper affordability units.
1: All right, thanks for that, Carl. I have one final question for you, and that is, what do cities need from the state and other partners and what can they do to address housing affordability in their communities?
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, um, you know, as someone who works in the legislature, I'll kind of answer it from that direction. But, you know, we we need the state to continue to invest in the core programs like the Housing Trust Fund um, to help build more subsidized housing uh, across the state. There's been some challenges in making sure that that's equitably distributed and that the rural areas get um, housing developed too, which we certainly need to see and support. Um, We'd like to see the the continuation of of progress in providing local revenue tools and options. And then outside of the revenue side, um, what we ask for is recognition of the differences um, between communities and the different challenges that they face. Um, You know, everywhere is not Seattle, Um, the real estate market is very different everywhere, the cost of land, whether or not um, the building industry workforce is available in in the community in question. Uh, We hear frequently from places outside of the Puget Sound, for instance, that they believe that their builders just make more money building homes in the Puget Sound region, so they um, travel to work. And so cities, um, you know, will go decades without multifamily development or only have a handful of building permits in a given year. Um, And, you know, it's important that the state realize that cities are not directly um, building housing. So we're not in control of whether or not that all those different market forces align and allow someone to make a profit building. Um, We have a lot of influence on the means by which they do that. And we have decisions that we can make that will make that more or less cost-effective for them, but at the end of the day, the private market has to voluntarily come in and build. So the, these punitive approaches, where there's this desire to have accountability on cities to meet specific housing targets, are really, really difficult in that um, scenario. So we we need a deeper understanding of these challenges by policymakers and to to think through how you would address them. And on the partner side, you know, we um, we have great relationships with the counties and. Um, you know, the low-income housing developers and providers and landlords um, and all of those groups come at it with their own point of view and their own kind of um, preferred solutions. And we continually ask folks to keep an open mind and find some flexibility. Um, An example being, for instance, um, there's a big push to limit local uh, state investment in, in housing to the lowest incomes Um, because those are most difficult to uh, build. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of rationale for that, but there are other communities that have more naturally occurring um, low-income housing, um, but really face a challenge with workforce housing. Um, Or there are other communities that have both challenges, but, you know, really addressing the um, sort of teachers and firefighters uh, level of um, uh, the income spectrum is a real hard uh, thing to deal with. And there are projections out of King County, for instance, that, um, you'll see, um, very few pockets of, of, um, zip codes that are affordable to even that income level, um, moving forward in the next 10 or 15 years. So, um, we do also ask for flexibility for tools that can address different levels of that need. Um, and we're not always met with, um, warm regards on that point from others who are interested in housing. So that flexibility and the recognition that there's really a lot of different challenges here and that there's not going to be any one solution um, is really critical from all of our partners.
1: Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate your expert perspective on this. I think you have a great way of boiling down some technical issues so that it's easy to listen to and understand. So I really appreciate that. Uh, That's it for our City Voice podcast. You can access the State of the City's housing report on our website at wacities.org. Go to our data and resources tab to find the report and feel free to share it with your legislators, friends, colleagues, residents, whoever you want. Pass it out freely and let us know what you think. You can drop us a line at the contact us on the website as well.